So at supper time, I've been reading the Wingfeather Saga to the family. We're on book two by Andrew Peterson, North or Be Eaten. And only a, we only can cover a chapter or two at a time, but quite regularly, as I read the final lines of a chapter and start closing the book, I hear something like, No, Dad! Read some more! One more chapter! The chapters raise questions that uh, they want answered, and they, they heighten the, the tension, right? The kids want resolved. Will they escape? Where will they go next? What about the enemy? And so on. Well, the first half of Joel has kind of left us in a similar place, hasn't it? In fact, Joel shares a story that he wants us to tell our children. And he wants our children to tell their children and their children to the next generation. But in telling this story, there's this great tension that rises, a great question that looms after the first half of the book. The people have suffered a devastating locust plague, and it's not just any locust plague. We've learned that the Lord is dealing with Israel under the terms of his covenant with them at Sinai. The locust plague isn't random, it's relational. God has dealings with Israel for their sins. And his goal is to drive his people back into his arms. So life's necessities get stripped away from them. Kingdom hopes begin to shrivel up. The signs of God's presence get cut off. And it reminds Joel of what the day of the Lord will be like. And so he sounds the alarm. An inescapable day of great ruin and terror approaches and no one can endure it. So their only hope is the Lord's mercy and steadfast love. And so Joel also summons them to repent. He calls them to mourn and to fast and to gather together and to cry out for mercy and concern themselves with God's honor among the nations. And the question we're left with is, will the Lord answer? Will the Lord turn and leave a blessing for his people? Will God hear their cries? The second half of Joel answers that question with a resounding yes. Yes, he answers their cry, and it's an outpouring of mercy beyond what they can imagine. Let's read it together and hear the Lord speak to us in his holy word, starting with verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rearguard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion. 
And rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. So verse 18 begins a major shift in Joel's prophecy. And from this point forward, it's, it's nothing but blessing for the people who return to the Lord. But notice how it begins in verse 18 with God's jealousy and God's compassion. In the Old Testament, God's jealousy is covenant language. The first time we see it is in Exodus chapter 20. God makes a covenant with Israel at Sinai. And in the second commandment, He forbids idolatry. And the basis for that commandment is this, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. You see, God is jealous for His people's exclusive worship. If they belong to Him, they can belong to no other. Now, sometimes God's jealousy moves Him to judge Israel for flirting with other gods. But when they repent, and when they concern themselves once again with His honor, like they did in chapter 2, verse 17... Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God, right? When that happens, God's jealousy moves him to save her, to deliver Israel, to draw his bride back into his arms and protect her. And that's what happens here. His jealousy for his people's exclusive worship moves him to save in light of their repentance. And Joel also uses the word pity. Sometimes it's translated compassion. You might recall when Moses was a baby and his mother put him in a basket and set him in the Nile in hopes that his life would be spared somehow. And the daughter of Pharaoh finds the child and it says she took pity on him. Okay? So it's the same word. Right? She looked on this child's helpless state and then it moved her to do good, to act, to, to uh, take care of him. Well, God is acting in a similar way here with his people. In response to their cries, God looks on their helpless state. They can do nothing to save themselves. And then he works for their good. And the rest of the chapter is an outworking of this jealousy for their worship in the land and his compassion for his people in their helplessness. Okay? So one way God's jealousy and compassion 
move him to act is this. God removes the enemy invaders. God removes the enemy invaders. Verse 20. I will remove the northerner far from you. Now, who's the northerner here? Some have said, well, it's a human army. A human invader, like Babylon up to the north. And others have said, no, no. He's still got the locust army in view, and it's just another metaphor to describe them. And I think there's more to support that second view, especially when God identifies the army as the locusts themselves down in verse 25. Still, we have to ask, why does Joel call these locusts the northerner, right? Because the locusts army becomes a type that points to the way human armies will eventually have their way with Israel. And so Joel uses the same language language that Jeremiah and Ezekiel uh, used. The Lord would raise up the tribes of the kingdoms of the north to set themselves against Israel all around. And it becomes such a pattern that the northerner signals enemies of all types that come against the Lord's people. But God is promising here to remove them. Okay? In other words, yeah... God's going to remove them in relation to these locusts, but when they encounter the armies later on, in coming generations, whatever enemies are coming against them, they can look back to Joel, remember how the Lord delivered them from the northerner, and say, that's how he can do it again, and again, and again, right? So God is promising here to remove them. He says to drive the enemy into a parched and desolate land. It says his vanguard into the eastern sea. So that would be the Dead Sea on the one hand and, and his rear guard into the western sea, so the Mediterranean. And you might be wondering, okay, how can the Lord drive them into a desert and at the same time drive them into a sea? Well, it's poetry, right? He's layering the metaphors here And both of these places are places of desertion and death. Okay? Uh, also, the two seas, they mark the borders of God's kingdom on earth, right? The land, the promised land there. God's kingdom on earth. And so he's, what he's saying is he's putting the enemies outside the kingdom. Okay? In places of desertion and death. Okay? Outside of God's kingdom, that's all you're going to find is desertion and death. And then add to that how the Lord has this reputation since the exodus of hurling Israel's enemies into the sea. Right? What happened the next day in Exodus chapter 14? Israel looked and she saw all of the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power that the Lord used. So likewise, at the end of verse 20, the stench and foul smell of him will rise. So you've got these corpses laying on the seashore. Okay? This is the God of the Exodus, working again to save his people. It says, the stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Now, it's possible to read that last part as the Lord doing great things. A lot of our translations don't specify who the he is. But it seems better to read it as the reason for the severity of God's judgment. 
In other words, God wipes out the enemy because they have done great things against his people. And then that contrasts in verse uh, 21 with the Lord doing great things next. So that's where we're going now. Here's another way God's jealousy and compassion move him to act. God reverses the covenant curses. God reverses the covenant curses. Now, he hinted at this back in verse 19. Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. But he develops it further in verses 21 to 24. He addresses the land and the beasts and the children of Zion. Uh, And whereas we see the Lord's uh, judgment provoking this great fear at the beginning of chapter 2, now the Lord is replacing that fear with rejoicing. So he says, Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. In verse 20, the locust army had done great things. That is, by way of destroying the land. What we're going to see now is the Lord has done great things by way of restoring the land. The prophets will sometimes describe the land rejoicing. So he says here, right? Fear not, O land... Be glad and rejoice. So the prophets, they will describe the land rejoicing. Sometimes they'll describe the trees clapping their hands, right? And the hills singing together. The image is that of a creation that's no longer burdened by the curse. It's no longer groaning under futility and decay and death. But it's actually blossoming forth in everything that God meant for it to be. To display His beauty. And so because of God's compassion, what we're seeing here is that's soon to be true again for the land. In verse 22, he adds, Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. Now the phrase in English, are green, it comes from a Hebrew word that appears only one other place in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 11. And God said, let the earth Sprout. Vegetation. So we're seeing here that God is promising to recreate the pastures like that. To make it like a new creation work in their midst. You see, Joel chapter 2 verse 2 said that the land was like the Garden of Eden. And then the locusts came and turned it into a wilderness. And God's flipping that around. I'm going to make the wilderness like Eden again. I'm going to turn it into a paradise. And then along with that, it says the tree bears its fruit. The fig tree and vine give their full yield. And remember the fig tree and vine imagery in Scripture. When the vine and the fig tree prospered uh, in the Old Testament in the land, that signaled, that it signaled God's coming kingdom. And a ruler in Judah's line who would one day come and rule on the earth and his kingdom would cover the earth with with bountiful blessings. So the Lord is here restoring to them the kingdom hope that we once saw was kind of shriveling up in the last chapter. And then look at verse 23. He says, Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for He has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, and the vat shall overflow with wine and oil. 
Just some history here. Israel was utterly dependent on God to, to, to provide rains for the land. Okay, when, when they were in Egypt, the crops were normally fed through irrigation systems coming off the Nile. But then God brought them into the land of Canaan. And it was a land of hills and valleys that needed the rains to prosper it. And so God brought them to a land where they would be utterly dependent on Him year-round to provide the rain. It's not something they could control. And this is why the covenant curses become such a big deal. If they obeyed God, then God would bless the land with rain. But if they disobeyed, He would curse the land and He'd shut up the skies. He'd make them like iron. And so it becomes really good news. Really good news when the prophets promise this new day of rain and plenty for the land. For the threshing floors to be full again was for the, peop- for, the, for the prophet to be saying that God would lift his curse off the people. You will note that he gives the early rains, uh, it says, for your vindication in the ESV. Now that could mean that the Lord is vindicating his people before others, right? Maybe the, perhaps the ones that were mocking them saying, where is your God? And, and God is now vindicating them. But it could also be translated the early rains for righteousness. And in this case, it's recalling God's righteousness in responding just as He promised to respond to them in the covenant when they repented and when they turned back to Him. When the people repented and they cried for mercy and concerned themselves with, his, with God's honor, He would be faithful to do as He said and bless them. And so this is God acting righteously according to His covenant in response to His people. So God is purposing here to be gracious to them and restore His people in a kingdom that's plentiful and leaves them wholly satisfied. And then one more way God's jealousy and compassion move Him to act. God restores the kingdom blessings. God restores the kingdom's blessings. We observe this in the Lord's provision. Uh, Look at verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. So we're seeing here God was sovereign over the locust army. I mean, He sent it against Israel. But the judgment has served its purpose. And His purpose was to drive them back into His arms. They have repented. They have returned. And so now God is sovereign to remove the army and then restore everything that the locusts had eaten. Can you imagine standing in the land and looking around and and seeing the devastation year after year? And what you're actually seeing is not just dead plants in a barren wasteland. What you're looking at is the consequences of your sin. That's what you're looking at. And you're just reminded every morning you wake up and every time your child says he's hungry and every time the trailers from the farmers come home empty, every time it's just reminder after reminder of the consequences of your sin. And then, and then to hear the Lord say, I will restore to you the years the locusts have eaten. Meaning, what you will receive in my kingdom, it'll far surpass everything you lost. 
God offers a kingdom whose bounty far surpasses what their sins have destroyed. And it says they will eat in plenty and they will be satisfied. We also observe the kingdom blessings in the Lord's praise. Verse 26 says, They will praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 13, we saw that you know, he had cut off the grain offering and the drink offering. And sometimes those offerings were associated with the sacrifices, but a lot of times they were associated with the various feasts throughout the year, which were meant for times of celebration and praise for the Lord's goodness and His abundant provision. This is what the farmers were bringing in, and they're bringing the the grain offering over here and the drink offering over here to praise the Lord. But when the locusts invaded, all of that was taken away, and the praise along with it. But here we're seeing that the Lord restores their praise. He deals wondrously with him, which, which is a word that, we, that often appears in the Psalms. Just, it's just peppered all over the Psalms, this phrase, wondrously, miraculously. It describes works that can only be explained by God's powerful, gracious intervention. Such works not only send the psalmist into praise, they compel the people to follow him into that praise as well. When he says, remember the wondrous works that he he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things for you. And what we're finding here is the same praise in Joel now restored to the people. The kingdom blessings also come in the Lord's protections. You notice twice at the end here it says that uh, my people shall never again be put to shame. My people shall never again be, be put to shame. And we saw in verse 19 that when they were under God's judgment, God made them a reproach among the nations. It was God's doing. He put them in a vulnerable position where the nations would mock them, but in their repentance, the Lord Lord now fights for Israel. He fights for His people. He rebuilds them, and He takes away their shamefulness among the peoples. And so what we're seeing here is that in God's kingdom, so outside God's kingdom is desertion and death, but inside God's kingdom is glory for His people and honor. He replaces their shame with glory and honor. We also see the Lord's presence restored to them. Remember from chapter 1 that the greatest tragedy of sin is that it separates us from joy in God's presence. And even worse, we observed in chapter 2 that the sin actually turns the Lord against us. He He was the one leading the army of locusts against the city. But now look at verse 27. He says, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God. So here is the ultimate gift of God's compassion and grace. He gives them himself. That language, I am the Lord your God, it's covenant language. It spoke of a close relationship that God shared with Israel because of of his special grace toward Israel. And here we also find the answer to the question of verse 17, don't we? The nations would ask, 
Where is, it, where is their God? And now we hear the Lord's answer, I am in the midst of Israel. We wouldn't have thought that by the end of verse 17, would we? But the Lord answered prayer and he chooses to dwell among them. In mercy, he gives himself to his people. And it's here in their experience of God's merciful presence that the people learn there is none else. There is none else like this God. God is holy. He doesn't wink at sin. He must judge covenant breakers. But for those who cry for mercy and concern themselves with his honor, he gives them himself and full access to his presence. Once again, he comes and he dwells among the people. So we have come full circle, haven't we? You see, God was jealous for his people's exclusive worship. And it's through his compassionate acts by removing the army and reversing the curses and restoring the kingdom to them that they come to worship him and they come to rejoice in him and they come to dwell in him and enjoy him. And that's not all the Lord has done. I mean, we're not even touching on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit today. We'll have to save that for next week and look at it more closely then. For now, I want to close with just a few takeaways from verses 18 to 27. And the first is related to prayer. Joel encourages us to pray for God's merciful intervention. Pray for God's merciful intervention. I mean, I want you to consider how, just zoom out for a minute from this text and consider the whole of Joel's message, especially going back to chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Look at it with me. He says, Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Now when he says, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? You might think, oh, that's just describing the locust plague and how terrible that was and how it's not like anything else they had experienced. But I want to say, if you stop there, you don't get Joel. That's not all he wants you to see. When he says, has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? He's not just talking, revealing to you the God who's not going to tolerate sin. He's also revealing to you the God who responds in mercy when you repent. And he's saying, has that happened in your day? You want to hear more about it? It's the whole thing that he wants the coming generations to hear. Okay? So, don't fail to understand Joel by reducing those words there to just the judgment. Joel also presents to us the God who mercifully intervenes when his people pray. God's answer to the people's cry is motivation for all the coming generations, including ours, To pray, and to cry, and to fast. 
Joel is motivation for us to cry out to the Lord. For us to say, God, act in my life this way. Intervene in my life this way. Father, remove the enemies who set themselves against your kingdom. Father, break the power of canceled sin in my life and set the prisoner free. Father, restore the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let the land and seas rejoice again. Let the trees clap their hands again. Let the hills sing for joy. Bring the day, Lord, where there are no more shootings. and No more 13-year-olds dying in the streets. And no more pain and sorrow and tears. Father, break into this mess and have mercy on us. Joel is meant to stir that up in the people of God. We don't know how long they had to pray between verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2. And we don't know how long they had to wait for God's answer. But we do know that God answered the prayer. And when He did, it came with an abundance of blessing and lavish kindness and all kinds of hope. So cry for God's merciful intervention in your life and in the lives of others. Let Joel's message further motivate your prayers and your longings, not only for yourself, but also for the others in your life that you know, that you see are hurting, that need God's mercy. This answer to their prayer was meant to be passed down from generation to generation as a way of saying, no matter how bad it gets, God hears His people's cries for mercy. And then second, rejoice in the abundant provision of God's grace. Rejoice in the abundant provision of God's grace. Joel is written to sinners, by the way, not righteous people. It's written to covenant breakers, not those who have it all together. Before the Lord, they were undone. They were on the brink of destruction for their sins. But when they repented and leaned into God's mercy... They found an unending waterfall of blessing. And that's the kind of God we serve. That's the kind of God we preach to our neighbors and the nations. He is the only and true God that exists. The one who lavishes his kindness on sinners who turn to him for mercy. He enters the lives of the desperate and needy. He shows compassion and in his jealousy for their praise, he satisfies them with the abundance of his kingdom. Now, for those of us who belong to Jesus, we know this better than Israel ever got to experience. The blessings in the land of promise were but pointers to the blessings that we share in Christ and His kingdom. I mean, think about it. What does God reveal in the ministry of Jesus? Do we not see the Lord removing enemy invaders? But it's a better removal than just a locust army. Jesus is unseating demon armies and tearing down their strongholds in people's lives. He casts out demons by the Holy Spirit. He watches Satan fall like lightning. He also drives them into the sea, doesn't he? Remember the two demon-possessed men that meet Jesus in the country of the Gadarenes? And the men were so fierce that no one could pass that way. And then Jesus then cast them into a herd of pigs. And what do the pigs do, it says? Right? The whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. What's the point? Jesus is the Lord of Joel's prophecy. 
who drives our enemies into the seas and puts them outside of His kingdom. His kingdom is replacing theirs. His kingdom is breaking in and pushing them out. Even as we speak the gospel as a church, enemy strongholds are coming down. Why do you have the gospel of peace that's shot in your feet and a sword of the Spirit? You're not on the defensive like, oh no, right? You're on the offensive. You're taking the message of the gospel into people's lives and Jesus is pushing the enemy out. In Christ, His people overcome the world and the evil one. Didn't y'all read something like that in 1 John this morning? Discipleship hour? You overcome the evil one when you belong to Jesus. Or consider God reversing the curse. In Joel, we see the divine reversal of the curses that fell on Israel. Right? We see kind of the new creation, the glimmerings of a new creation when he's turning a wilderness into Eden. Well, what does God reveal in Jesus' ministry? The blind see, and the lame leap like the deer. The sick heal and the storm calms at His word. Jesus is the one who's going to make creation right again. Jesus is the one who reverses the curse for us. He makes better everything that sin destroys. And even better, He takes away the curse altogether for those who trust in Him. You see, as long as sin remains in us, the curses cannot be lifted in any final and ultimate sense. But Jesus died to take away our sins. He endured the ultimate curse on the cross beneath His Father's wrath. And for that reason, we ourselves become beneficiaries of His abundant kingdom. This is why Paul says that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We know the Lord's provision because our greatest need has been met in Jesus. We sing His praise because He has done wonderful things for us in Jesus. We know His protection because nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we know His presence because we have access to His throne in Jesus. And through the Spirit, we call Him Abba, which is Father. So yeah, we don't see the full extent of that kingdom on earth yet. But when it comes, we know that it's not going to be limited to a chunk of land in Palestine The paradise He brings will one day swallow the earth and all the kingdom blessings He will restore to His people. So children of Zion, children of the true Zion, the Zion that Jesus Christ reigns in His resurrection, reigns over in His resurrection life, children of Zion, rejoice and be glad in the Lord. Fear not, as long as you're united to Jesus, God is in your midst, and He lavishes His kindness on you by giving you the ultimate gift, which is the gift of Himself. Third, take your regrets to the God who restores. Take your regrets to the God who restores. Now, in studying Joel, I've I've grown to love the promise of verse 25. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. Maybe maybe you ignored the Lord for a long time. 
People told you that only Jesus' kingdom satisfies, but instead you chased relationship after relationship, and you chased job after job, and you chased drink after drink, and you chased toy after toy. And it wasn't until much later in life that you truly bowed your knee to Jesus. Now, the Lord has his own reasons for saving people when he does, but still, you experience great regret. Regret for the years that you wasted. And you lack the power to restore them. Or maybe you had a falling out with mom and dad. And years have passed. And you haven't sought to reconcile. And bitterness has kept you distant. And now you've learned to regret how much you've neglected that relationship. Maybe you've kept something hidden from your parents. And it has brought great hurt to the family. And you want to restore the time that is now lost. But how? The days are just gone. And you can't get them back. Or maybe you were hard on your children. For years you grew frustrated when when the expectations weren't met. And you kept your distance instead of drawing nearer to them. And after getting help you finally realize that many of the problems at home were the result of your own sin and your own lack of patience and your own failure to understand your son or your daughter. But by the time you learned differently, they've graduated high school. And the years are gone. And the consequences of your sin, they linger. What can you do to restore them? Maybe it's regrets that you have as a husband. You wish you could change the years that have passed, but they're gone. And when you come home from work, you don't find an oasis anymore. Your sins have left a wilderness of pain. The kinds of things that need to change, the healing that needs to take place, it's too much for you to restore. Maybe it's a friendship you left, a responsibility that you didn't own up to. If you're remotely alert to these kinds of regrets, you should probably be giving thanks to the Lord for not hardening your heart. First. And then, take those regrets to the Lord who's able to turn wastelands into a paradise. The Lord who turns deserts into Eden. I mean, for those of you in Christ, hasn't He already begun that? If anyone is in Christ Jesus, He is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. God is in the business of new creation. That doesn't mean everything will be rightly and fully restored and this side of Jesus' return. With all the creation, we still groan for that day to come, but it is possible that some things can be. And that's what the church is. That's what a Christian is. 
In the same way that God restored Israel to be a pointer to the coming kingdom, in Christ, God restores us so that our lives become a pointer to the kingdom that is coming. God restores us such that our lives point to the new creation glory. So don't let your regrets drive you to despair and inaction and hopelessness. The God we encounter in Joel offers a kingdom whose bounty far surpasses what our sins have destroyed. So ask Him to restore your life. Ask Him to restore your home and to restore your marriage and to restore your church family. Begin by enjoying the greatest gift that He gives to you in Christ, which is the gift of Himself. Sit with Him. Tell Him your regrets. And ask for His restoration. And then lastly, live for God's reputation among the nations. Live for God's reputation among the nations. Eleven years ago, Jim Hamilton wrote a book where he traces God's work from creation through the fall, across Israel's history, um, and then on into Jesus' ministry, life, death, resurrection, and into the new creation. And his aim is to try to look at all the books across Scripture and establish a single theme, a single thread that ties them all together. And the title of his book actually summarizes what he found. God's glory in salvation through judgment. God's glory through salvation, in salvation through judgment. So all of God's works in salvation and in judgment share the ultimate goal of His glory being recognized and celebrated among the nations. And even here in Joel, we find the same, don't we? It's through judgment in the locust plague that the Lord works repentance in His people. And then it's in saving them and restoring them that they learn to praise Him and acknowledge that there is no other God like this God. It's also in working to deliver them that God answers the nation's question, where is your God? Well, I am in the midst of Israel, God says. And so what we find is that God will not be mocked, not by, not by His own people when they pretend their sins are no big deal. He must bring his chastisement, nor will he be mocked by the nations when they doubt his power to save them. Joel is clear. God will shake heaven and earth. He will darken the sun and the moon and the stars. He will send locust plagues and then drive them away. He will raise up armies and then tear them down. He will devastate a land and then recreate its beauty, all to make it abundantly clear to His creatures that He alone is Lord, and He alone saves, and He alone deserves our attention, and He alone deserves our worship. So is His glory your greatest concern? Is the Lord's reputation among the nations your highest pursuit? I mean, learn from Joel that all our concerns in life should end there. It should end there. It should be pointing there. The centrality of the Lord's glory should be like, like the sun in our solar system. Holding everything else in our lives in orbit. And when we minimize that glory and when we trade it for lesser pursuits, everything else starts coming down. 
So let us keep, let us keep God at the center of all we are as individuals and as a church. He has spoken. You shall know that I am the Lord your God. And there is none else. Let's pray it again.